You're listening to the Central City Assembly podcast. We're dedicated to sharing content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus for the good of our city and helps you grow in your love for Jesus. So enjoy this episode and may you be filled with the love of God the Father. became the pastor of our church, um, going on, I think this is our eighth year that we've been pastoring, but before that, my wife Annette and I, we were the worship leaders. Um, that's actually partly how we grew in friendship and we grew in love for one another was, was through music. Um, we love serving our church family in that capacity, and as you can see, we still love serving our church family in that capacity, even though um, we're the pastors now. Uh, leading worship and being on a worship team is something that actually comes pretty naturally to me. I would even say it comes more natural than being a pastor, if, if, if you can believe that. Um, but there came a point after several years of being the worship leader when the love for it started to fade. It became more of a chore, more of an obligation. It was something that, that I um, it wasn't something that I had I'd enjoyed anymore and that I looked forward to doing every single week. Uh, it was actually a pretty tumultuous time for me because at one point, all I wanted to do was lead worship full time as, as like a vocation. And so when the love for it started to fade, it was almost like I was having this crisis of identity. Um, I started doubting and asking all kinds of questions. Uh, the biggest question was, why? Why? Why are we doing all of this? Uh, why are we even singing and, and playing instruments on Sundays? Uh, why are we spending so much time and money and energy to project lyrics and um, amplify sound and create ambiance with lighting? Uh, I'm pretty sure that none of the early church had any of this, right? And yet they still encountered God. They still saw moves of the Holy Spirit. The church duplicated and replicated massively so quickly. And so why? Why do we do it this way? Why, why do we do what we do here, um, but then we see denominate, other denominations do something completely different? And, and this led me to start questioning uh, really everything. Uh, why are we meeting in this building rather than in homes? It costs a lot to cool it and heat it and, all, and run water and all those kinds of things. Um, why do we sit here for 30, 45 minutes while someone preaches to us? Why do we do the things that we do when other churches do something different? Why, why, why? Uh, but what's interesting is that when I first started leading worship and serving in the church, I didn't have any of these questions. Uh, I was happy and I was excited to serve and be used by God. There were no whys. Just joy and excitement and a, a feeling of fulfillment through, through leading worship. And so what happened? Why did the passion grow cold? Well, let's broaden the scope a little bit. Why does the passion grow cold in 
other areas of our lives too. Right? Why, why doesn't your marriage feel as exciting and passionate as it did at the beginning? What's happened um, to that, that feeling of fulfillment and accomplishment that I had at work, where's it gone? Uh, where did the joy of being a parent go? None of our parents would ever say that, right? <laughs> I, I think we've all experienced this on one level or another, right? What happened? Well, what I learned, at least for me and my role as a worship leader in that season, um, is that I had forgotten the why. I had forgotten the why. Right, after years of serving, week after week, I slowly started to lose track of the why, the, the purpose for which I was leading worship in the first place. And when you don't understand or when you lose track of the why, the meaning, the purpose of the things that you engage in on a regular basis, whether that's in the context of leading worship or, or marriage or at work, it makes sense that those things can feel empty and meaningless over time. That doesn't mean, though, that they don't have any meaning at all. Right? We engaged in those things to begin with because we recognized some kind of meaning in the, and purpose, right? But through the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly grind, we just lose sight of it. And some people respond to this almost existential crisis by moving on to something else, something different. I easily could have just stopped leading worship and done something completely different. I could have found meaning and purpose doing something else. Many marriages end because of this. Many people leave their careers and quit school because of this, but I don't think that's the best response. I think a better response is to remember the why. To remember the why. Or if our original why was maybe shallow or incomplete or just wrong, then we need to get proper perspective so that we better understand the why. And that's what happened to me. I eventually came to a better understanding of why I was leading worship, and I eventually found myself enjoying it and loving it once again. Um, I've heard of many marriages that have been on the verge of collapse, but then being saved because they remembered the, the reason, they remembered the why, why they got married, why they began a relationship altogether. I've seen people uh, not give up in their career or, or school because they remembered the why behind it. Do you hear what I'm saying, church family? And the sad truth, um, at least in the West, is that there's this mass exodus away from the church currently taking place. Now, I say the West because in other parts of the world, the, the church is actually exploding. It is growing wildly. But here in the West, it's in steep decline. And I'm not just talking about people who have decided to not believe in Jesus anymore who are leaving the church but professing Christians who are also deciding that church is no longer necessary for them and they can practice their faith individually. And I think the reason we are witnessing this mass exodus is because people have lost sight of the why behind church. Right? Or their original understanding of why it was flawed or incorrect, it was unsustainable. And instead of doing the work of remembering why uh, church is so important, or being taught and learning why church is so important, they're deciding to just leave it altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there might even be some here today in this room who you are on the verge of leaving um, because you've been asking those same questions that I was asking. Why? 
Why are we doing all of this? What's the meaning of all of this? Well, today we're starting a, a new six-week series called Why? How original, right? Why? Um, where where we'll, we'll address questions like, why do we gather? Why do we worship through singing songs? Why do we study the Word of God together? Um, why do we take communion? Why do we baptize? Why do we give of our resources? Why? Um, and what we'll learn through this series is that God has very good reasons why. Yeah. It's not just random. He has really good reasons why. Um, what we do here on Sundays and throughout the week as part of our faith isn't just about obedience and following rules, but there's real satisfying and fulfilling meaning to it all. And so this is week one of Why, and the title of today's message is Why Gather? Uh, let's pray again, and let's seek the Lord in this moment as we just prepare um, to hear from him. And I want you to pray, church family, just right where you are. Ask God to open your heart and to open your mind. Ask him to help you to receive all that he has for you this morning. And God, we're thankful that when we come to you, even when we come with our wives, you're there and you're ready to answer. It might be an answer that we're not expecting, but you're ready to answer because you desire the best for us. You're a good father who cares for us who wants to see us thrive and flourish, who wants to see us walking in our purpose. So God, would you help us attune our ears to you this and receive all that you have. We love you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right. Um, real quick, I'm just interested. Who's, who's rooting for the Diamondbacks in the World Series? All right, God bless you. Um, who's rooting for the Texas Rangers in the World Series? Oh, man, I wish there were so many more. Okay, I'm from Texas, right? And so I have this conflict of interest right now because I live in Arizona, um, so I kind of want both to win, but really I want the, the Rangers to win. Anyways, <laughs> enough of the, the sports. Um, okay, so uh, this is going to be a very heavy note-taking kind of sermon series, okay? So every week what I want you to do is bring a notepad, open your notes app on your phone, lots of notes, okay? Okay. Um, all right, so during this series, we're answering why questions specifically about church, okay? I know we have lots of questions about our faith and, and, and why we do certain things, but we're centering it specifically around church. Why do we do what we do on Sundays and throughout the week? Uh, and today, we're addressing the why behind our gathering together. All right, but before we get to that, I think we first need to better understand this word church that I keep throwing out there and using, okay? Um, and when you see the word church in your Bible, the Greek word that is translated as church is ekklesia. Everybody say that, ekklesia. And the first use of that word in the New Testament um, is by Jesus, and it's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're going to get back to this verse a little bit later. And then there are only two more times that Jesus uses the word church, uh, ecclesia, and both of them are in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, where Jesus is talking about resolving conflict between fellow believers, and he says this, 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia, the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the ecclesia, the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But the church, the word church, interestingly enough, or ecclesia, is never used anywhere else in the gospel. Just those three times. And that's because during the the time of the gospels, during Jesus' life here on earth, the church wasn't a thing. It didn't exist yet. The, The world didn't need the church because it had Jesus, the God of the universe, dwelling among them. But Jesus knew that he was going to die, that he was going to rise from the dead, and then ascend into heaven, and his ministry would need to continue on earth during his temporary absence. And so toward the end of his life, and that, we see that happening in, starting in verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter uh, 16, towards the end of his life, he started talking about this thing called church, called ecclesia, right? Um, And then after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the word church starts popping up so much more, starting in Acts and all throughout the rest of the New Testament. And and we see the birth of the church. We see the growth of the church. We see the work of the church. We see the persecution and the suffering of the church. And we see the life and nature of the church as a whole. Okay, but what is it? What is church Because even that word church, we're like, if you say it enough times, it's like, what am I saying, right? It starts to sound weird. Church, 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 right? It's weird. And so um, we need to understand it a little bit more. Well, uh, the the Greek word, ekklesia, it has several meanings, okay? Um, In its basic sense, it, it means simply assembly, right? A casual gathering of people. And so if you're at the park and you happen upon a group of people gathered together just hanging out, that's an ecclesia. That's an ecclesia in the basic terms. And the New Testament only uses this meaning of ecclesia once in Acts chapter 19. A second meaning of the word is found in ancient Roman politics, where the the ecclesia was a regularly summoned uh, legislative body. And they would come together and come up with laws and governance for the land. Uh, So a a school board, then, is an ecclesia in Roman terms. Uh, A city council is an ecclesia. Uh, But the New Testament, it never uses ecclesia with this meaning. Uh, But there's a third meaning. Uh, The third meaning of ecclesia is a people, a community, a congregation with shared beliefs. With shared beliefs. Uh, The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which came out even before Jesus was born, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word ekklesia to refer to the gathering or assembly of all of God's people, the nation of Israel. Uh, And it's used in the New Testament to refer to all Christians all over the world or to a local gathering or assembly of Christians in a specific location, uh, all for the purpose of worship, teaching, the scriptures, um, and discussing matters concerning the community. Now, everybody got all those definitions, okay? Now, in all of these descriptions and uses of the word ecclesia, even in the non-religious uses of the word, what do you notice is missing? Well, well, there are a couple of things. First, not once, is the the word used to refer to a building, right? right? You've heard that before. The, The church, the ecclesia, is not a building. When you look for 939 South 10th Avenue, Tucson, Arizona, 85701, that's where you are right now, um, the Google machine will bring up a building, 
And they might even call it a church, but that's not the church. That's not the ecclesia. Uh, the second thing that is missing is that not once is the word ecclesia used in reference to an individual person. It never means that. Okay, the church, the ecclesia is always a plurality, a gathering or an assembly of multiple people. And so listen, the Pope isn't the church, right? You, by yourself, are not the church. I am not the church. It's always we are the church. That's the only way. We are the church. And so when Jesus uses the word ecclesia, and when the majority of the New Testament uses the word ecclesia, it's always in reference to a gathering of people with a shared belief that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is our working definition that we're going to use throughout this whole series for this word church. A gathering of people with a shared belief that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're going to build upon that definition as we go throughout the weeks. Um, And for today... The main point that I I want you to see from this unwinding of the word church is this idea of gathering. Everybody say gathering, Gathering. just so I know you're still awake. Okay, because um, ever since I I was young, and maybe you experienced this too, all the way up until now, I've often met people who profess to be Christians, but who didn't gather with other Christians. And oftentimes their reasoning is, well, you know, I am the church, right? I'm the church. Jesus is always with me. I have access to him at any time. I can worship him. I can pray to him. I can read my Bible at any time. So I don't have to go to church. Church is happening wherever I am, right? Church is so much more than a building, man, right? Okay, and listen, yes, that is right. Church is so much more than a building, but it's never less than the gathering of believers, Church is so much more than a building, but it's never less than the gathering of believers. According to scripture, according to the very meaning of the word ecclesia that we've just unpacked, church is so much more than a building, but it's never less than a gathering of believers. Do you you see that, right? And that's why when the Bible authors write about and explain the church, they use uh, imagery of a family or of a temple or of a body. A family is made up of many people, and family is meant to be together. If I'm away from my family for too long, um, I just don't feel right. I feel like I'm missing something very important to me. I get lonely even, sad, because family is meant to be together. What about a temple? A temple is made up of many bricks, and bricks are meant to be put together, right? If you have kids in your house who have Legos, a brick all by itself is a hazard, isn't it? You step on that thing and you're, you want to go to the doctor. Right? A, a brick by itself can be dangerous. A brick by itself becomes a stumbling block for someone to trip over. A brick by itself and in the hands of the wrong person can be used to do some damage. It can break a window or it can wound people. I mean, what did Kevin McAllister use in Home Alone 2 to break the toy store window and and fend off the sticky bandits? A brick, right? A brick by itself certainly has its uses, but listen, never for anything good. Never for anything good. What about a body? A body is, is made up of many parts. And if you ever see a body part all by itself, you know something has gone terribly wrong and you need to call 911 immediately, right? 
Why is there an ear on the ground all by itself? Whose foot does this belong to? It needs to get back to them. A body part that's been separated from the rest of the body withers and dies. Okay, let me say it again. The church is so much more than a building, but it's never less than a gathering of believers. And so no, you can't have church all by yourself. You you can't be the church all by yourself. To be a part of Jesus' vision, he's our master, right? He's our Lord, he's our savior. To be a part of Jesus' vision and prophecy, building his church like we read in Matthew 16, 18, you have to gather with other believers, you have to. And Jesus said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his what? Church, his gathering of believers. Now, we have to understand Jesus' imagery because uh, sometimes people think the imagery is of hell uh, on the offensive, trying to prevail against and overcome the church. But that's backwards of what Jesus is saying. Right? What Jesus is saying, actually, is that the church is the one on the offensive against hell, storming hell's gates as it tries, as hell tries to defend itself. Because defend itself. that's what gates are for, right? You've never used a gate to attack somebody. It's for defense. Okay, but the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell won't be able to keep standing as the church goes on the offensive to advance the kingdom of God, to spread the gospel and reach the world. And so listen, if you're trying to storm the gates of hell and advance the kingdom of God all by yourself, Jesus says you're going to fail. Or we can interpret that from his positive, right? Because it's not an individual Christian that the gates of hell won't prevail against. The gates of hell can certainly prevail against one single Christian. No, it's Jesus' church. It's Jesus' family, his temple, his body, that the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against. Advancing the kingdom of God depends on the gathering of believers. Do you see it, church family? And so we see that that Jesus' intention and even his presupposition for his church, right? Presuppositions don't need to be voiced, right? He doesn't explain this in detail, but we we gather it. His presupposition for his church is that it would be a gathering, an assembly of his people, all professing him as Lord. And this is is the built-in meaning of the word church. And we see that meaning come to life and unfold in the early church as they gathered together on a regular basis. And we start seeing that happen in the book of Acts. Um, Just a little background on the the early church, okay? We have to remember um, that the church, when the church was first born, the majority of its members were Jewish. They were Jewish. And even after Jesus ascended into heaven, they continued to follow many of the, the Jewish customs and traditions. And it was customary for Jews to the, the synagogue, which by the way, means house of gathering. Um, it was customary for them to gather in the synagogue multiple times a day, okay, for prayer, uh, but especially on Saturday, the Sabbath, and especially on the Jewish holidays and feast days. Um, and since the majority of the early church Christians were Jewish, they would go to the synagogue daily. That was their gathering place. They would gather with others to worship, pray, and read scripture, They would go to the synagogue, especially on Saturday, to observe the Sabbath. 
But listen, since they also believed that Jesus was the risen Messiah, it became customary for Christians and Jewish Christians to gather every Sunday additionally um, in one another's homes to celebrate and remember that their Jesus had risen from the dead because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, Sunday. Right? Um, And during these Sunday gatherings, they would remember and teach Jesus' words. They would worship through singing. They would serve and take care of one another and the community around them. Uh, They would pray. They would take communion as Jesus told them to do as often as they gathered. Um, so, So the early church gathered in the synagogue, but also in homes on a daily and regular basis. All right, but as more Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, um, as more Gentiles became Christians, the custom to gather in the synagogue became less of a custom. And the reason for this is very practical. It's because only Jews are allowed to go into the synagogue and worship with other Jews, right? And so if Jesus' desire was for all of his followers to gather together, Jews and Gentiles alike, then they couldn't meet in the synagogue anymore. It just wasn't possible. And eventually, as the gospel rapidly spread, uh, the Gentiles eventually out, the Gentile Christians eventually outnumbered the Jewish Christians. And so daily gathering in the synagogue, it just wasn't possible anymore. So instead, the early church continued to gather in homes or anywhere that was, was big enough for all of them to get together, not just on Sundays, but also during the week. And remember, too, that at the very beginning, um, the church was only gathered in a centralized location in the city of Jerusalem, um, because that's as far as the gospel had spread. And the Jerusalem church was massive, like thousands of people, all predominantly Jewish. But persecution, which started with the martyrdom of, of Stephen, it caused the early church to scatter all over the, the, the region. Now, this didn't prevent early believers um, from finding one another, and, and they continued to gather in the midst of persecution throughout the week as they, they did in Jerusalem. And so this is where to see the, the universal church of believers spread out and subsequently multiple locations, multiple local churches formed in different regions and cities all throughout the known world. Now, um, though they were spread out, the early church's gatherings all over the world uh, were committed to the same purpose. They had this incredible unity amongst uh, themselves. And the purpose of their gatherings, and, and you should definitely write this down, the purpose of their gatherings was to worship God first and foremost, to equip the saints, and to evangelize the world. If you remember from two weeks ago, Nathan Finocchio, he kind of talked about that too, and I want to expand it because it's so important. Right, the, the purpose of their gatherings was to worship God, equip the saints, and to evangelize the world, and in that order of importance. And we actually see this modeled for us in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47. And I'd love for you now to open your Bibles and, and turn to that passage. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And I'd like for us to read what this early church model looked like. All right, we're a church that likes to honor the word of God by doing the work and, and turning there in your own Bible that you have, whether that's a digital Bible or, or a Bible, uh, a physical one. And so if you would, turn there. And when you get there, say, go Texas Rangers. Go Texas. Thank you, my dear. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Now, let me just say, as you're turning there, um, 
that I don't believe that we are supposed to duplicate exactly what the early church looked like in Acts. Sometimes that, that becomes this ideal that lots of churches try to, to, to reach, right? Uh, but I don't think we have to do exactly what the early church did. Because even the early churches spread throughout the region um, that we see in Acts, they didn't all look the same. Some met in houses, some met in, in bigger places. They had women pastors and male pastors. It was all different, right? Um, there were variations, but they all adhered to these three very important practices of worshiping God, equipping the saints, and evangelizing the world. And so I'm not saying that we need to copy the early church in Acts, but there's a lot that we can learn from them, especially these three things. All right, so let's, let's read. If you're there, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Real quick, can everybody do me a favor? Silence your phones, please. Okay, we've had a, a few different phones go off. <laughs> if we can silence our phones. All right, uh, 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is the life and the nature of the early church. And we see three things. First, they worship God. Right, this passage says that they prayed to God. Verse 43 says that awe, which is a reverent fear of God, came upon every soul. Verse 46 says they would attend temple where they would sing songs and pray and read scripture. Verse 47 says they were praising God. What does all of this sound like? Worship, right? Worship. The early church was passionate about worshiping God. They understood that this was their primary purpose as a church. Okay, we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about why we worship. But worship is all about making God the biggest and most important person in your life. And the early church did exactly that, that during their gatherings and throughout the week. Uh, the second thing we see is that the early church equipped the saints for the work of ministry. Verse 42 says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were the ones who were the closest to Jesus while he was here on earth. Jesus was their master, their rabbi, and they learned from Jesus what the kingdom of God is all about, who God is, and how they're supposed to live. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, he commanded them what? Right? Go and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And that's what the apostles did. They taught the early church everything that they learned from Jesus. They equipped the saints, the believers, to live according to Jesus' ways and commandments. And we see that the early church, they, they lived out the apostles' teaching in the way they gathered together, in the way they worshiped, in the way they took communion together, in the way they served and cared for one another. And these were all the things that Jesus taught them and that they then turned around and taught the early church. Uh, the third thing, the early church was committed to evangelizing the world to reaching the world. 
as we, we learned in our last series on sharing our faith, evangelism is just the act of sharing the gospel, right? Sharing the good news with others. Um, now, we don't see in this passage where they were explicitly proclaiming the gospel. There's not a verse that we, we read in that passage, although we do see that happening all throughout the book of Acts. Uh, but verse 47 says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And if faith comes through hearing the word of God, which, which is what Paul says, then some kind of gospel proclamation was taking place and people were coming to faith in Jesus. But not only that, um, they were living out their faith in Jesus publicly. They were being faithful witnesses of Jesus with their everyday living. They were serving those in need, not just those in the church who had needs, but as any had need, as verse 45 says. The early church evangelized the world through words, but also through works, and people were being saved daily. And so we, we see these three things here in Acts. We see it replicated in the different churches that would be planted and birthed all throughout the world. They worship God. They equip the saints. They evangelize the world. We see that over and over and over again, all throughout Acts. And listen, anytime Paul or, or the other writers of the New Testament reprimanded a local church, it was because they weren't doing one of these three things. For example, in Revelation, the apostle John reprimands the church in Ephesus because they were known for serving and trying to evangelize through service, um, but they had forgotten their first love, John says. Their first love being God the Father himself. They weren't worshiping God the way that he deserved. Right? Uh, Paul, too, he had a beef with the church in Ephesus. Because in his life, he says they were um, straying away from the teachings of the apostles. They weren't adhering to the equipping and the teaching that they were given about Jesus and his ways. And so he reprimands them saying, that's not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way you were taught Jesus. And then again, in Revelation, John rebukes the church in Sardis. He says, because they were dead. They were dead. But what's interesting is that they looked like an alive and they, they gathered they worshiped God. They taught the scriptures. They did everything that you'd expect a church to do. But unlike other churches during that time, they had experienced no persecution. They weren't being persecuted like all the other churches were. While other churches were being persecuted for their outward and bold expression of their faith, Sardis hadn't, hadn't experienced any of that. Why? Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus is offensive to the world. They don't like it. It's offensive to the world. And if you're preaching the gospel, if you're actively evangelizing the world, you're going to offend the world and experience persecution from them. But Sardis hadn't experienced any, which leads us to believe that they were not active in evangelizing the world, hence the reprimand. And so Jesus is committed, uh, Jesus' church is committed to three things, worshiping God, equipping the saints, and evangelizing the world. And this is how Jesus' church will prevail against the gates of hell. All three. Right. If we're just a social justice church, we're not going to prevail. If we're just a church that's all about reading our word and, and very, we're not going to prevail. If we're just a church that's all about just worshiping and experiencing his presence, we're not going to prevail. We have to do all three. If we want to see the kingdom of God advance on earth as it is in heaven, 
We must be committed to worshiping God, equipping the saints, evangelizing the world. And if a so-called church is lacking in any of these, then they're not really a church according to Jesus' vision and purpose for them. And so we've seen that Jesus envisioned, and he prophesied even, that his church would be a gathering church. He designed and built his church to gather. The church is so much more than a building, but no less than a gathering. It's the gathered church that will prevail against the gates of hell, not individual Christians. And the way we advance the kingdom of God is by gathering together to worship him, equip the saints, and evangelize the world. The why behind our gathering is so important. And what the author of Hebrews says, and we'll start wrapping up real soon. What the author of Hebrews says is that as the return of Christ draws near, we the church should actually gather even more. That the frequency of our gathering and what takes place during our gatherings should increase all the more. Let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. We usually read this verse and pastors will use it just to say, come to church. The Bible says come to church, but there's depth to this, okay? Let's read it. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, meaning that some were were neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day here refers to Jesus' return. And what we know from Scripture is that as the day draws near, and every day is another day closer to Jesus' return, amen? That's why we're a people of hope, because Jesus is coming back. So as the day draws near, we know it's going to get harder and harder to be a Christian. That's already happening. It's getting harder and harder to be a a professing follower of Christ in our world today, isn't it? And as the day draws near, persecution will increase. The church as a whole will go through a global tribulation, and it's going to be incredibly difficult. But it's going to be so much more difficult for those Christians who are trying to live out their faith all by themselves. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that as the day draws near, and as it gets harder and harder to be a Christian, if you want to lighten the burden of that, you have to gather with other believers. That's the only remedy. That's what has to happen if the church is going to survive the increase of persecution and tribulation that we're going to face. And the gathering should increase more and more as Jesus' return gets closer and closer. And so church family, why gather? Because Pastor Kai tells you to, huh? Because we're supposed to. That's what the Bible says, huh? No! Please, I hope I've done a thorough job enough of, uh, to show you how the why of our gathering is so much more, so much more important than simply obligation and because we're supposed to. I hope I've accomplished that today. We gather because we want to fulfill Jesus, our Master and Lord's vision and prophecy for the church that he's building. And Jesus' church is a gathering of people who profess him as Lord. A church is so much more than a building, but it's no less than a gathering. It's, It's the church, the gathering of believers who will prevail against the gates of hell and advance God's kingdom to the very end. And if you've been, if you've been um, 
If you've been on the verge of, of wanting to leave it all, if you've been on the verge of saying, I don't think this church thing is right, I don't think it's, it's for me, I still want to follow Jesus, but I, I just don't get this church thing, I hope you remember now the why. Right? I hope you see how important our gathering on Sundays really is. I hope you see how important our gatherings during the week and growth groups really are. Right? If you remember and you understand the why, I believe that you'll, you'll want to stick with it. And I believe you'll want to help others stick with it too. Right? You're not just going to want this for yourself, but you're going to want it for other people, for your family, for your friends, your loved ones. And so my challenge to you this morning as we close, my application for today is, is really quite simple. My challenge is gather all the more as the day draws near. Gather all the more as the day draws near. Attend church. <laughs> Attend our gatherings more than you miss. Right? Make gathering a priority in your life. Make sure your family is here. Yeah. Encourage your friends who, who you haven't seen in our gathering uh, in a while. Encourage them, them to come back. Right? Invite some new friends to gather. Right? Let's be the church that Jesus envisioned. Let's gather together for his glory, for our good, and for the good of the world around us. Thank you for listening. If you are blessed by this episode and would like to help us create more content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus, would you consider giving a financial gift of any amount today? Whatever you give will go towards building the kingdom of God in the lives of people all over the world. Thank you for your support, and we pray many blessings over you. Thank you.